so Josh and I lived on the same street. Really? Growing up. And we overlapped for about maybe a year. But I was eight and he was 15. We didn't hang out. Yeah. We <laughs> I, don't, I, I hope I'm, for your sake you didn't hang out. I was a pretty chill eight-year-old. <laughs> All right. Is Sean in the shots? He's not. Huh. Actually, it's kind of. Duncan, I don't have my hat. Maybe I what? Have a you have a hat on. I, mean, I don't know if you know this. You look like one of the wet bandits. What's a wet bandit? It's just like the time I came up to that. Home alone, bro. Just, yeah, you gotta, you gotta. They're called the wet Joe, bandits. Joe Pesci. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta, pull, you gotta pull that down, man. Yeah. You gotta, we got too much forehead going on. Wait. It's, oh. Do you know why they're the. <laughs> oh my God! <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you've never seen a bald guy? <laughs> Bob! Oh my God! Harsh. What did you think was under there? A full head of hair? <laughs> We're not all genetically as blessed as you. Jeez. Okay, where's your hat? I don't know. Your I office? I'll look at it. Guys, head oh. headphone volume for me is extremely loud. Oh, we had it up for Jill. Okay. Um, all right. So, did you guys see? There's a new Beverly Hills Cop coming out. No. Kevin Bacon's in it. Not. Not. Uh. No. Eddie? No. Eddie Murphy is. Eddie oh. Murphy's in it. No, Sean, you weren't in the shot. What's Candy Cane Lane? Oh, it was an no. Amazon. I mean, no. I didn't watch it. No good. Was it awful? It's like Eddie Murphy doing like not like like fam like a family. Yeah. It's like a family rom com, yeah. right? They must pay him yeah. so much money because he keeps doing those, right? These these flat brims are just they just feel ridiculous. All right, I wanted to ask you before we get started. Did you see the trailer for Civil War? <gasps> Are you like, it's, I don't, it's I, I'm not sure. scared the shit out of me. I'm not sure how I feel about it. scared the shit out of me. Bob, did you see this? No, I didn't. No. So the guys at A24 who seem to have their finger on the pulse, maybe more so than most The studios, vibes are seeping into Hollywood. The negative vibes are seeping into Hollywood. Let's so not, don't play this. No, I'm not, I'm not play it. What, what do you mean? Don't have a civil war? No, so, no the trailer. No, I'm, not playing, right. I'm not playing the trailer. Right. So they, uh, they made a movie about like what would happen if we had a civil war now. It's rough. And it's a tough watch. The the like the movie art poster is snipers on the torch of the of Statue of Liberty. It's like uh, don't look up. Yeah. Uh, but, no, but, but not, more way worse. not funny. Way though. worse. <laughs> it's got a good chance. Jesse Plemons is in it, and so is Kirsten Dunst. I think it's Kirsten Dunst is is great, and uh, I'll probably see it. Oh, I will definitely see it. By the way, I was thinking about no, this. No, but the question is: is yeah. it is it is it not not cool? They're gonna put it out in April. Is it not cool to put a movie out like that in this environment? Almost like goading people it's a little or bit. daring people. Yeah. Like I, I feel like it's it's maybe too on the nose for the moment. That was a, that was my reaction. It's it's scary. Well, you haven't seen the you haven't seen the trailer. If you see the trailer, you'll be like, this probably isn't a great thing to wish cast out into the world. Right? That was my that was my impression at least. So, but of course, I'll go see Bob's it. silent, completely silent, has not a single reaction. <laughs> hey, Bob, how, That's do you, cool. how do you feel like civil, how do you feel about civil wars? Good? Uh, yeah, I've done not they generally against good. them. Generally All right, let's, them. let's change the topics. Um, <laughs> not a fan? Not, yeah. I was thinking this is going to be like a little more upbeat. No, 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 we're no, getting we there. We're start with it. civil right, war right. and then we get no, more right, upbeat. So. The Fed is dumping money in the streets. Wait, like, I want to give you, I want to give you a couple of, uh, Meb Faber did 75 facts from 2023 mm. at the Idea Farm. We can't do 75 of them. But uh, there's, some, there's some really good stuff out there. Out of nearly 10,300 mutual funds and ETFs in the United States, there are more than 5,900 where the listed portfolio managers own no shares 
in the fund they manage. Do you believe that? Yeah. I, you course. can believe that? Yeah, of course. Uh, why don't we just close those and then we go from 10,300 to 5,900? Like why, why, uh, you know, why get hung up in your own investment management? It's like, uh, come on, come <laughs> on. <laughs> hung up no, is don't, great. You don't get high on your own supply. That's how I, right. that's how I was yeah. taught. They're, actually, all those people are holding low cost diversified ETF, uh, laughing at the shareholders of laughing their at funds, the shareholders paying uh, 150, 200 basis points. Uh, what else about, you got? How about this one? The Nikkei 225 was flat from July 1990 through November 13th, 2023. So that's not all markets are meant Wait, to be bought and hold. Stocks only go up, right? The not U.S. stocks. Not in Japan, US only stocks. U.S. stocks. Uh, here's a good one. Blackstone hit a trillion dollars this year in assets under management. Did you think that you think that would happen? Yeah, I guess the you know there's economies of scale. They're just sucking up. They'll take a dollar from you anybody. Must, right? you, you must have thoughts about private credit. Oh, I mean, <laughs> you know, the, be the beautiful thing about private credit, I'm in a bit of a snarky mood this, this, uh, this afternoon, is that it's totally uncorrelated to any other asset class, right? Yes. Until, uh, until you have to get defaults. some money out of it. Right. <laughs> until, until you want to get your money out of it and everyone defaults, right? I mean, it's, it's – I think it's it, – the problem with private credit is that it, they are misleading people, people who genuinely – Wait, I want to ask you about this, the distinction – is the problem with the product or is the problem with the marketing of the product or both? I mean, the product is fine. The product's not that interesting, right? You can go yeah. buy an ETF at, you know, 50 basis points to get essentially the same economic exposure as price. Yeah, but that, but that marks the market. Nobody wants that. Right. And people yeah, I, don't want to, I don't want to see Bob, the prices. I think, That's I think the alpha. People want to be lied to. Well, but the real problem is the idea of saying that that's uncorrelated. Uncorrelated. Go go read some of the, these marketing materials. That's they a say, lie. Uncorrelated. Yeah. So that's the problem I assets, have with it, and that is that is garbage. Yeah. Right. Like, how can you possibly say that a credit cycle is uncorrelated, or like like the credit cycle is the economic cycle? Right. It's a different point in the economic cycle, but it is the economic cycle, and then. I mean, the other big issue is that there's no track record on these things. So they're like, well, I'm going to show you something from, you know, you know, January 2010. It's never defaulted. You know, we've had no defaults basically in this product. So like, of course, you've had no defaults. Yeah, yeah, zero product. interest rates since January right? 2010 also. And then if you talk to these folks, you say, why don't you just backfill it with, you know, say bank lending through time? Because all you're doing is just replacing bank lending. They're like, oh, no, no. We are so much better at picking than banks. Is that the Not alpha, the, the selecting who to make loans to? And and the likelihood that at, they'll pay not at trillions of dollars of scale. No, there's so, no alpha at trillions of dollars of scale. Okay, just like one one bank or another bank might be better at lending to this sector or that sector, but at the banking, you know, we're talking. There's been more private private lending, private credit lending over the last ten years than there has been coming out of banks. Is that true? There's yeah. a there's a bubble in my inbox. I'll just tell you that. Wait, is that true? There's more there's more private credit. To, uh, loans than bank loans? Than bank loans over in the In dollar last, terms in or dollar in transactions? Terms, yeah, yeah. There's a good Wall Street Journal article about it. Uh, we, like, it, it Wall Street Journal did this article to your point where they showed like the bubbles of like all of these companies like KKR. Right, right. It was just, just huge. Uh, I wanted to play this from Mr. Powell yesterday. Hi, Jones. Financial Times. Um, what a voice. Yeah, I'd say the mood among economists at the moment seems to be one of cautious optimism which is somewhat corroborated by your forecast by this sense that oh, we all... Right going to have a soft landing. Yeah, when we, when we hear from the general public, there's a lot of discord about economic conditions. What do you think explains this disconnect and does it matter for policymakers? 
Um, it may be. A common th theme is that while inflation is coming down, and that's very good news, the price level is not coming down. Prices of some, some goods and services are coming down, but overall, in, a, in the aggregate, the price level is not good. So people are still living with high prices. And uh, that's, that's not, that, that is something that people don't like. And, you know, what's, what will happen with that is wages are now, um, real wages are now positive, so that wages are now moving up more than inflation as inflation comes down. And so that, uh, that might help uh, improve the mood of people. But we do see those, we see those um, public opinion surveys. All right, enough of this. The thing that we can Bob, do, if, if, do, you, do you think that the gap between how the economy is doing and how people feel the economy is doing is going to shrink in 2024? I think so. Mm. Um, and the reason why that is is that um, the economy is pretty, doing pretty well. We've gotten an injection here, basically a bunch of stimulation, right, from stock prices back up through highs, interest rates coming down, all that. That's all good. And that should keep things tight, which should keep wage growth pretty good at a time when, you know, we've getting, we're getting a bit of a moment of moderation of inflation, right? So, what, I mean, what do people really care about in terms of the vibes? It's, it's actually – it's not that complicated. It's prices. Like, do they have a job? Rent. Are they earning income? Healthcare prices. And what's the price at the pump? That's what matters, right? You think price at the pump trumps healthcare premiums or – it, it, it's just it's – a, it's a way to be able to see what's going on in the day-to-day. -day, you know what right? people complain about right now? Auto insurance more than any – more. first of all, gasoline prices are down like 90 days straight or something. Right. Nobody's complaining about that. Everyone right now is complaining about auto – out of nowhere. That's like the topic. I bought a bag of dog food yesterday. It was $85 and I'm pretty sure it used to be 55 or 60 And well, you love I, don't, dog, right? I don't care that it's not going to be 86 next month. And I'm speaking for the for America here. I'm a voice of the people. I care that it's eighty five dollars. Like all of that, that thirty percent increase that happened. That's not going away. That's not going away. And the question is: Is it, are are people going to feel like they're catching up? Because what the problem is not. I mean, the problem obviously is that big gap, and then also feeling like they're falling further behind. And so the question is: Can we get a switch here where real wages start to rise? Right, where people feel like things are getting a little easier for them, right, in the in the in 24. And I think that that's where we're gonna see it's gonna feel a little easier. It's still gonna you're just gonna nag, pick up the tomato and be like, it's three dollars. What the heck? Right. But if if their job's still there and oil prices are coming down and they can start to feel a little bit of relief, they'll feel a little bit better. But yeah, the level is still pretty out of whack, right? So the vibes are still weak but getting a bit better. Getting a bit better is what we're all about. Let's get this shit started. In the words of the great Ronnie Mund. <laughs> what show, John, what show is it? 122, what's up? Welcome to The Compound and Friends. All opinions expressed by Josh Brown, Michael Batnick, and their castmates are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Redholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ridholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Today's show is brought to you by Crane Shares. Let's talk about the KFA Mount Lucas Managed Futures Index Strategy ETF. 
The ticker there is KMLM. This is sub-advised by Mount Lucas Management, who in 1988 established the first passive index to measure returns to risk, bearing, and futures markets. This has the potential hedge on equity, bonds, and commodity risk. It consists of 22 liquid futures contracts traded on U.S. and foreign exchanges, such as copper, corn, sugar, gasoline, soybean. Duncan, how are you feeling about soybeans? Are you bullish or bearish? I'm bullish. Well, they're long, so that, that that's consistent. That jives. All right. To learn more, visit kfafunds.com slash KMLF. Guys, we have returning champion with us today. Bob Elliott is the co-founder, CEO, and CIO of Unlimited Funds, an asset manager providing easier access to hedge fund strategies. Bob was previously the head of Ray Dalio's research team at Bridgewater. Anything going on with Ray Dalio lately? Uh, no. Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> did you get a Did you get a Christmas card from the Dalio family this year? Yes. No. I right. got lost. In we that. don't have to go there. <laughs> uh, it's, it's enough about Ray Dalio. Let, let, let this Let this man end his year in peace. Uh, we're starting with a very simple question. Yesterday, there was an absolute eruption on Wall Street, and that followed pr- arguably five of the best weeks I've ever seen in the stock market, but. It was almost like a crescendo of the war is over. We won. We won with veritably no casualties. Mission I, accomplished, like, baby. Like literally the Fed itself was like, we're probably going to have to f- the economy up to get inflation down. Like they were telling us that. And the economy said, oh, yeah, watch that. this. And the economy LOL'd. We added uh, 200,000 jobs last month. We're adding an average of, I think, 300,000 jobs over the last 12 months. Uh, inflation over the last – 17 months has come down from an eight handle to a three handle about to cross into a two handle and uh core inflation too. both are coming down rapidly. And did we do it? Did we do it? Like, is it that simple? We did it. Oh, I don't know about that. I mean, like if you think it, <laughs> we did it. Cheers for the fact. <laughs> right? everyone, everyone wants to cheers, right? Everyone. No, wants we to want to, we, no, we, we want you to, we, we want you to tell us. Despite them. But, I don't think they get – I don't want to give them the credit, but like – Well, what, first of all, you know, I, the Fed needed to tighten. Monetary policy was way too easy. But look, a big part of what you see is that this is all – this is a lot of it's sub, the resolution of the supply chain issues, right? And so, yeah, when used autos were surging and now they're falling. That's not the Fed. That The Fed has nothing to do with the, the Fed. The Fed doesn't print semiconductors. Right, or semiconductors or, <laughs> or right. oil, okay. right? We got that part, but also – uh, rents have fallen, and that a big part of that is the availability of capital and and money feeds into uh, wages, rent. Those things are now moderating too. That's some of Just, some of that. There's a the lot Fed. of supply side stuff too, right? The the amount of yeah. you know creation of units basically in tertiary areas is about as extreme as it's been. You know, secondary cities, sunbelt cities, areas that had been you know seen a lot of. Migration, yeah. That there were there just weren't enough apartments. You know, there still it still aren't. There still aren't enough yeah. apartments. Well, the median the median uh, asking rent posted the biggest decline in over three years. So rents are still dropping. That's true. They're still twenty two percent higher than they were in November twenty nineteen, uh, but they're four percent below the highs. And if this continues to moderate and even deflate, this this certainly certainly should help should help the vibes. It should. It's. I mean, how much do you pay in rent? How much do you pay at the gas pump? Those are the basic things, you know, the base, how much you pay in the in the grocery store. But 
you know, this is we're sort of at the maximum here. That's sort of the that's the thing I would say. The maximum what? The maximum disinflationary impulse. Like gas prices are not going to keep falling every day forever. Yeah. Right. Okay. Rents. That's a good point. You're not going to have you know, a, a millions of units of of rental apartments coming the, onto the market. The deceleration and, is going to decelerate. That's right. Well, then I, I like to call it the negative impulse. Right. The disinflationary okay. impulse is going to is going to moderate, right? Used cars went up and then came down. They're not going to go to zero. New cars aren't going to go to zero, right? Right. And so the issue is, if you look at how inflation is right now, which is, say, 3 to 4%, it's not that great, not that low, considering the fact we basically have max disinflationary impulses in the economy. Oh, I see. Right? But it's going to lap higher prices throughout the course of 2024, and it will – at least in comparison with year ago monthly numbers continue to look better and better. It'll look better, but the but the the question question from the Fed's perspective is durability, right? Everyone in the market is looking at here and saying, well, you know, we're gonna we're gonna print two percent in uh you know in these reports, yeah. measured inflation, and everything's set. But the question is does it stay at two percent? It's not a question of does it print at two percent. Do you think the risk is that the bond market, get, uh, credit markets get too easy, stock market runs up too much, and all of a sudden we're right back to seeing inflation in, in uh, wages? Well, look at what we've, we've seen in the last eight weeks with oil prices falling and the stock market going to new highs. Yeah, that, those two could revert. Th- those two points yeah. have translated directly into increased retail sales during the holiday season. Okay. Right? So we saw a big print in retail sales today, which is indicative of the fact the consumer's in great shape. And if anything is feeling better, if the consumer is feeling better, they're spending more and keeping growth elevated. And so, you know, Chairman Powell gets on the on the presser yesterday and says, well, we've had a moderation of growth. Yeah, it went from five, which was way, you know, which was very elevated Sc- in the third quarter. And, and, and yeah. not it wasn't really five. It was right, measured right. at five to the most recent Atlanta Fed uh, GP now at two and a half. Right. Two and a half. In an economy that has productivity growth of about one and labor force growth of about one, two and a half is above potential growth. It should be two. Right. It should be two or one and a half. Even. So it does not require stimulus. Right. It's certainly not a place where you're like, you know what we should do? Cut 170. <laughs> well, well, here's a hilarious dichotomy. <laughs> right? so, right? Like that right. is not – this is not the economy. It's not an emergency. It's not an emergency to yeah, cut yeah. as if we're in the middle of a recession. Yesterday, Powell said our, our actions have moved our policy rate well into restrictive territory. Later on during the day, I saw a tweet from Lisa Bromowicz. U.S. financial conditions are the most accommodative they've been since the Fed started hiking rates last year, according to Bloomberg U.S. financial conditions. That's obviously not through no fault of their own. But what if we, we find ourselves in an environment in 2024 where the economy starts to overheat, where the S&P is up 20 percent, home prices are up another 10 percent, and they have to say, holy shit, we got we to gotta tighten again. Is that possible that we see that we see those conditions ease too quickly? Well, the thing that's actually interesting is if you look at the market pricing on the short rate market, you're actually seeing you're seeing a lot of people piling into expectations of them easing. But what you're seeing is actually uh, the probability of of hikes next year starting to rise in that short rate market. And so people are, you know, I think a, a lot of folks, the, the smart money is looking at the set of conditions and saying the odds that there's a hike next year are not zero. They're getting higher because of the way that they're behaving. Bob, everyone everyone uh, was like very good about pointing out the lag effect of hikes 
and why aren't we seeing it show up and why aren't why aren't spreads blowing out and why isn't this and why isn't that why wouldn't it work in the same way so the so the fed now indicating that its next move is an easing michael's point like what if the stock market runs up blah 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 shouldn't there be lag effects to cuts we have no like we have no evidence that the stock market running up will bring back about inflation we have the opposite experience if you if you think about uh 2012 2013 stocks were ripping higher like 50 and 60% rally uh and we didn't get any inflation yeah because remember that that was the jobless recovery right it was the asset man's recovery the asset owner's recovery that's right but it was the, the jobless recovery but we have we have the opposite right now we have a a unemployment's at 3.7% yeah right we're adding you know essentially we're I mean, but the the, reason but my point is the stock growth- market wouldn't be the thing that causes it. It's the employ the employment, the employment market and the and yeah. absolutely okay. which is that the nominal income nominal income today like uh, income growth for for high spending cohorts like under one hundred fifty thousand dollars is growing between five and six percent a year. That's up two to three percent relative to where we were in twenty nineteen. So just think about that. Like that's the structural gap in the economy, right? Is that we're not seeing we're seeing income growth. Yeah, that continues to meaningfully outpace what's appropriate to, for the Fed to meet. But people, demand. so you you do you do a bunch of CNBC now. You do a great job, by the way. But you hear people say like, "Oh, the Fed doesn't want to see the market do this." It's like, are you are you f-ing kidding me? Like in 2022, we had a Nasdaq crash that didn't affect prices in the real economy. It didn't affect really labor in the aggregate. So why do we think the Fed's biggest concern is that the stock market has a party? I, just, I, I don't think they. I don't, I don't think they care it. that much about the stock market. I don't either. Party. Okay, I don't but, either. But the problem, the problem is not the stock market. The problem is the bond market for them. Okay, that's what's going to test their credibility because right now, so if that they, gets too easy, they said three cuts. Yeah. Right in 2024, which you know wouldn't be what my choice would be, but is is reasonable. It's kind of like the the tweaky cuts of mid 90s. Yeah, yeah. Policy, but. Then you go look at the market. It was, I was coming up here on the subway and 170 basis points priced in to cuts in 2024. What's going to happen is the Fed is either going to lose credibility by massively easing and meeting the market, or they're going to piss off the bond market by doing nothing close to the 170 basis points priced into the cuts. So the cha- the two-year uh, yield had a one-day change that was greater yesterday than anything outside of the March SVB yep. saga. How many basis points did the two-year fall yesterday? Thirty. Uh, where is this? Uh, it was a, yeah, it was thirty-four. It was I think major. Yeah, it was. It was a lot. So look, that's the last ten years outside of March. It was the largest decline, and I think a lot of a lot of this is due to positioning. Yuri and Timmer. Uh, this was December fifth, so nine days ago, he tweeted, "What will the Fed do next? No one knows for sure, but the higher for longer trade has been a crowded one." Uh, per the commitment of traders data below, which could explain the 72 basis point reversal of the two-year. So people were massively short the two-year, expecting higher rates. And so that trade has obviously been unwound. Do you think that it's been overdone? Well, it looks actually a lot like what happened in the SVB time, right? Where where particularly levered money hedge funds in SVB were massively positioned higher for longer. There was essentially a, a negative inflation shock there which created a sharp reversal and all those funds had to cut their risk in, you know, pretty fast. And that created, but remember what happened there was that expectations of December 23 cuts or, or rates went to 300, almost 350 basis points. In March. In March. Yeah. 
right? And where are we today? We are not at 350 basis points. We're a whole heck of a long yeah, way yeah. from 350 basis yeah. points, right? And we're seeing basically the same dynamic play out. The hedge funds were positioned higher for longer. They got caught on the wrong side of this. They're being forced to, they're all being told to cut is that who's Is that what's bringing about what we saw in the two year yesterday? It's hedge yeah. funds unwinding a yeah, trade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the they macro, no longer believe The macro work. funds are, that was the position that they were holding. Higher for longer. That they were holding yeah. a position higher for longer. And the reason why they're holding a position higher for longer is not random. No, it, the Fed said it, that. It, it said, the Fed said that. Many times. Unemployment's at secular lows. Income yeah. growth's still high. Economy's strong. The economy's strong. Like if you, if you just took the normal look at, What's going on? You'd say, you know, is what is policy restrictive? What well, policy is not that restrictive, like relative to conditions. It doesn't seem particularly. So, what, what do you think about about this theory that I'm baking in the oven? That mortgage rates are down, now down to six and a half percent. So, a combination of the housing market being reopened, maybe the IPO window opens up, maybe f- people feel a lot richer because their portfolios are higher, yep. and consumer spending goes berserk, and they have to tighten it again. Well, I, I mean, look, relative to 170 basis points priced in to the over the of easing over the next year, like the Fed could do nothing and it would be a, a huge surprise. Right? Isn't the offset even the three cuts they said that they were going to do would be a huge surprise given the way the market's priced? Isn't the offset how much debt has to be repriced this year? Wouldn't that maybe help keep things in check? I mean, you can- Or is it just not enough to matter? It's not enough to matter. Like the, okay. the terming out of the debt, I mean, this is the challenge is that normal, you know, if you go back whatever cycles decades ago, the short-term financing conditions really matter. But yeah. now you look at things and, you know, everyone will show you a nice curve of, oh, there's, you know- The wall. The wall. But, but the, look the at the cliff. wall. The wall <laughs> is so far away that it doesn't matter. Okay. The wall is not – doesn't matter for the Fed. It doesn't matter for trading markets today. It doesn't matter. So that won't keep – that won't keep the economy – if the economy is ready to, to run now or if the stock market is ready to anticipate that the economy is about to run and if the consumer is ready to start running. The wall has nothing to do – that's why the problem – The wall is not going to offset that. The thing, the thing to slow down the economy is – getting falling asset prices. That's the only way that this works because the falling asset prices slow the consumer, which, you know, hurts the earnings. Which but so the Fed tried hurts. to do that and they couldn't. Well, they did it for like well, eight months. Yeah, I mean, they couldn't. I don't I don't think that's right. They certainly could have- Ten months. They could have uh, portrayed a certain stance in policy yesterday that would have been consistent with, you know, uh, trying to push back against the significant well, how about this? Fine. financial condition. The Fed tried to slow the economy. And they really couldn't. Yeah. I mean, that it shows that they were not, you know, the tools that they used were not particularly effective, right? We're still at secularly low unemployment and at, at potential growth, right? Or better. What they so were, they were able to slow transactions in the housing market. We have the evidence for that. They did that. I don't yeah. know. I don't know if that, I don't know if, what, what is the transmission mechanism from that into the real economy? Well, loan officers got laid off. Yeah, it sucks for realtors. Yeah, but I mean, even if you look at the real estate sector, like the employment in the real estate sector hasn't really moved all that much. Construction hasn't really moved that Usually the things that are sensitive to that to that slowing hasn't really moved that much, partially because we've had the multifamily boom and all that stuff that's been in the cycle. That just It just takes a long time. And this is the whole thing, is that like our expectations of how these macro cycles they like whip around. How many times we've we been through this? We were, you know, if I came in here last year, it would have been like, aren't we on the face of a depression? Yes. And I was like, this time last year, like consensus was recession. The, the world is coming to an end. Yes. Right? And it was like, 
what has ended up happening is like unemployment today is the same as it was 12 months ago. You know, like nothing, nothing has happened. What's your biggest takeaway from, from how crazy the reality turned out to be relative to consensus a year ago is the takeaway that people just have no idea what's going to happen no matter what, or is the takeaway that there's something really extraordinary about the current labor force that made this time truly different from all other times the Fed has been this aggressive? Well, I, I think that I'd say there's two things. One, the the big picture story of the economy is it all just moves so much slower than like people who are sitting around on Twitter every day. It's, yeah. Right. Every day it's like, you know, we're in a depression, we're in a boom, we're in a depression, we're in a boom. Right. Because they look at they look at the Dow and, and that's the, a, it's a mood ring. It's a mood ring. And the expectations are shifting all around, right? We've had we've gone from hikes to cuts to hikes to cuts to, yeah, <laughs> to yeah. hikes over the course of the last uh, over the course of the last year. Yeah. So what's happening is the macro economy, like you know, no no macro economist on Twitter is going to tell you this, but it's really boring, right? Yeah, like nothing it's, changes. It's a in the macro economy. It's a battleship. It turns it turns slowly. So, I mean, but, but it doesn't react to daily so data. So slowly. That's right. Years. So do you think that we're- Years that, and years. But on Twitter, the narrative changes every six hours. Right. And so the economy is slowing very gradually. It's almost as if spending a lot of time on Twitter is not a really productive way to get good at investing. I'm just- I, Is that possible? You, I mean, unless you're reading my stuff. Other, well, <laughs> so you tweeted this. Can we go here? Mike, do you mind? Go ahead. If the Fed is going to more structurally go soft on their inflation mandate, it's a time to sell long bonds, not buy them. The Fed's own dots show no intention to bring core PCE down to at or below 2% until 2026, even under strong economic conditions. Okay. In English, please. What, in, what does in, that mean? In English, why why does the Fed's current dot plot and their lack of intention to slow their preferred measure of inflation, core PCE, why would that affect the decision to buy or sell long bonds right now for the audience? I already understand all this very well for the audience. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure. And for Michael. <laughs> could you explain this to – look, make eye contact I, I, with him. Michael? Okay. Let's talk about I'm going to uh, grab a drink of water. You the, just explain it to him and then we'll catch him up. The thing that's interesting about the dots is not what, uh, what their projections are because those are actually uh, useless because they have no idea what they're going to do. That's right. But all can aside, what are the dots? Oh, the dots uh, – Every quarter, the Fed, the various Fed governors uh, predict what they think is going to happen to growth and inflation and monetary policy over the next couple of years. It's literally like a roulette table where they put their chip. That's right. And, and it's literally dots on a piece of paper. Yes. That's why it's called the dots. The thing that's not is interesting about it is not their predictions because they have no predictive power. If anything, you know, they're, they're probably completely wrong. Completely. You know, more likely completely wrong than right. But what you can see is how they – are weighing things in terms of where they put their dots. And so as an example, it, when you look at the dot plot uh, this time, they showed that they think unemployment's going to stay, you know, very low. And they think inflation is going to, you know, remember their mandate, their their target is 2% on PC and actually a little bit below that because they, they don't want to go meaningfully above 2% in terms of the targeting regime. And PC is generally a little bit lower uh, overall. So they show on that, and that set of dots that PC is going to be at, you know, core PC is at 2.5 and 2.3 and 2.2 out to 2026. Perfect glide path. Right? Perfect glide path. <laughs> but their mandate is 2%. Yeah. And so these folks at the Federal Reserve are saying, we are not going to fulfill our mandate. 
Our mandate is 2%. But is it 2% right this minute? Or it, is their mandate to eventually get it's there? Not, not, it's not above 2% for five years. Yeah. Uh, 2026? What's It's almost 2024. They, they could be a 2%. No, no, five years from the beginning. They could right? be a 2% next month. They can take Fed funds to 10%. They'll be a 2%. I mean, you know what I mean? Yeah, like, but, uh, but, directionally, but the, they like the, the direction things are heading. Sure, but the question is, are they meeting their mandate? And Not the yet. answer is like, no. And it would be, if if this was just a wiggle up or a wiggle down, who cares? Right. The big issue is whether these inflation expectations get entrenched, and they've been bef- they've been behind the curve for years now. It's not it's not we're not arguing over 0.5. We're ar- arguing over are they comfortable with inflation being above their mandate for five years, mm. right? And five years is not a wiggle. It's not barely five years is unacceptable. You might as well not have a mandate, right? Unacceptable relative to their mandate, and so that's I think I think there's a genuine question here of like. Is the Fed actually not pursuing the 2% mandate? And that would have a lot of meaningful implications because if you thought that their real view was three is okay. Three is okay. Right. Hence the Barons cover this weekend. Right. Then that just changes that changes what you expect the long-term price of money to be. That's the anchoring part. That's the part That's where people just start getting comfortable with the idea that inflation is going to run faster and hotter just structurally. And then you start seeing that show up in the way people renegotiate contracts and the way people ask for compensation. Exactly. That's a, so that's problematic if that's taking place already and the Fed has lost control. Yeah. And and I think the issue is that they, they have not, they have control. They could make a decision. And this is why the dots are so interesting is they could make a decision to have inflation be, you know, more swiftly moving to their mandate. And the way that they make that decision is by, you know, keeping interest rates higher than than expected. But when you look at the dots, this is where the monetary policy part intersects with it, is that they're showing that they're going to cut interest rates. So they're going to proactively ease policy during a period when they're comfortable with the fact that they haven't met their inflation mandate and they have no problem with growth. So what's the implication for long bonds that you're making, that they're more at risk of higher higher than expected inflation? Well, everyone – I mean if you look at the bond market, basically like everyone has hard-coded 2 percent as a long-term inflation expectation into the bond market and into yields and things like that. What if it's 3? What if the – it's not – and it's not just is it 3, but as you start to ease off the mandate, that 3 percent mandate, there's more volatility in it. And if there's more volatility, then you need a higher risk premium to hold those bonds. So it's you know it's not just three; it's three plus the risk premium, so three twenty-five, three fifty, right? That's the effective compensation you need for inflation because inflation, if it's at three, it's going to move to four or five, and then down to two, et cetera. And so that's the basic question. Like that's a that's a totally different pricing of long-term interest rates. Whereas right now, if you look at long out the curve, it's basically like you know people are pricing in two percent inflation forever. Right. Till so the let, end of time. <laughs> right. So, so let me ask you this. You, you mentioned that the economy moves really slowly, really, really slowly. I've been saying that we landed the plane. It's over. Not to say that we can't have a recession, but we, we did it. The, the hiking cycle is behind us. We swallowed all of, the, all of the rate hikes. We did it. Are you saying that we could be easing at the same time, potentially, that we do finally feel the impacts of those 5% interest rates? Like if we get a recession in 2024, 
Do you think it's more likely to be as a result of the lag interest rate impacts, or is it going to be something exogenous? And of course, you can't know. I'm just but, I mean, but what do you worry more about? Where, Which of where, those two things? I mean, I'm much more worried about the plane taking back off. Okay. Right? Then I am about a recession. Where's where's the recession? Are you really? Like, where is the recession? Like, tell me. So, so the economy is at greater risk of overheating than of a recession. Absolutely. Do you think most people think that right now? Is that where uh, the mentality is now shifting to worry about a re, a re lift off of inflation? No, I, I mean, I think I think the Fed in particular and and many asset holders are enamored with a soft landing because soft landing is great for them. Yeah. Right. And who doesn't like that? But who doesn't like it? But the but the pro- the problem with the soft landing is it, it's priced in 170 basis points. It cuts is priced in. Stocks are, you know, back through the highs. Okay. Right? So you think the risk is all of a sudden it becomes apparent that that 175 basis points worth of cuts this year is not going to materialize because the data starts to run hot again. Yeah. And it doesn't, I mean, you know, it doesn't even have to run that hot again. Right. Where would we, where would we see it first? Like uh, auto prices, like all of a sudden shocking to the upside. I, mean, I think the main retail thing, sales. You got to look at the consumer, right? What, yeah, I agree. It, airlines, the, airlines. So airlines, consumer have, buying. Airlines like, have come down. Air, airline prices have come down. So I'll a give lot. you all right. So if I gave you one metric to follow this year to see if that the likelihood of that was about to play out, what, what would be the thing you would follow? Wages. I mean, the yeah, the, I think the wages. The wages okay. are the key thing. Wages right? are the key thing. Wages so if that starts sh- surprising to the upside two months in a row, we got a problem. I think, yeah, because that's that's going to. Cre- I mean, if you can only look at one thing, it's like it's like against. No, my, I know, my constitution <laughs> as a macro guy looking at a whole bunch of things. I know, but the alternative, <laughs> the alternative is the, it, here's here's the toughest part. I don't know anything about macro. Here's the toughest part that from the outside looking in yep. about macro. If you talk to 30 people who claim to either be macro strategists or run money on macro, each of those 30 people follows 30 indicators. They will talk about the one that occurs to them in the moment. Mm. If you're on the outside looking in and you don't know anything about this, like me, it's like, well, what really matters? I mean, this guy's got 80 different data points. Well, which one? Like what really matters? And I'm sure that there is a hierarchy of importance but the media doesn't know what the hierarchy is. I, mean, I think the media will report on whatever just came out. I think the, the, as though it's of equal importance. But but, it, but it's but it, at, at some level it's relatively straightforward, which is it's inflation and unemployment, and the reason why. But those, the inputs to those. So things. like ISM is that important? Like no. what's overrated? No ISM. ISM is a terrible. ISM is bullshit. I've always told you this. I've always ISM is, throw it out. Just, what else? ISM, ISM services. What else goes in the garbage? Zero correlated throw, to actual activity. Throw five more things out. We'll never talk about it on the show again. <laughs> the S&P 500. What else? Garbage. Yeah. <laughs> Moving averages, no good. Ah, uh, no, cares about that. By the way, speaking of the S&P, so <laughs> we had an incredible run in the stock market. Dan Greenhouse tweeted uh, that the 32-day change was whatever. So I I ran it as, Very of the, high. as of the end of the day yesterday. So why 32 days? That's when the October bottom was. Mm. So over the last 32 days, the S&P is up 14%, which is over the last decade, about as good a five-week period as we've ever had. Yeah. We, we saw out of COVID. We saw that yeah. at the bottom of COVID. But considering that we're not coming out of the lows, really, I mean, we were in a 10% correction in October. We had a hell of a run. Holy shit. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that's interesting about it is it's it's all about the bonds, actually, right? So I think the stock investors are staring at stock market. They think, well, everyone thinks these companies are great. But what's actually happening is bonds, long-term bonds, risk-matched bonds have gone up more than 
than stocks over that time frame. Depends which stocks. So it's all, I mean, whatever, the S&P 500. But, but, so, but so to your point about it's all, it's about, all about, it's, it's all about the bonds. It's all about bonds. And it's all about, and the reason why bonds are moving is because of the easing. So the that's st- the reason why stocks are moving. If you, if you actually look at the Qs, look at the S&P 500, uh, Sean was giving me notes on this before. Over the last month, they're up like six, six, 7%. It's not that impressive. What's really impressive are the worst sectors of the year. Small cap value, just- Russell's killing it. Up 20% or Utilities, something. Utilities, home builders. Uh, uh, Can we talk regional banks? S- regional S- banks. S&P S- REITs, regional banks, utilities. This is where the sex S- is happening. SL Green yesterday, sexed 12% higher on the day. Wow. Yeah. 12% I mean, Boston, wow. Boston properties. Like everything that got destroyed because of higher interest rates flew so it's your, But that's, that makes your point where you say it's all about the bonds. It's all about the bonds. None of that would be going on if not for the absolute plunge in rates. Right. And and both di- directly because of the discounting effect on the stocks, but also because it reflects just a meaningfully easier monetary policy. Well, stance. also because what was the problem for small cap value? It's a lot of financials and industrials. And frankly, they need to roll debt faster than the S&P does. And so the uh, implication of falling yields and a Fed willing to make the turn is you can now stop pricing in roll risk for for these businesses. That's right. And, 90% and, of the S&P 500 debt is long-term fixed with the Russell 2000, I think it's 50%. Right. Yeah. So much more sensitive to higher rates. Right. And then those small banks and small financials and stuff like that, you know, they, they're still holding some long-term debt, right? They're still holding the bonds. Obviously, bond rallying is a direct benefit. I think the interesting thing in there is that KRE is, you know, still well below its. Uh, I think so. I, so I don't like I don't like that trade from a secular perspective. I get the cyclical part. They were pricing these things as though they're zeros. They're not zeros. If uh, I mean, you if rates are going to moderate like five on yes, some of those stocks, fine, right? So you had that benefit, that snapback. Structurally, it's not going to be fun to be a regional bank going forward. If your primary advantage or or edge in that business is your geography, nobody cares anymore. So I like I I'm not jumping in on that trade just because if it goes the wrong way, I don't want to be stuck with those. Yeah, stocks. but some of those are, as I said, P's of five. When you're looking at Bank of America, which um, is a garbage business, you know, zero growth, wealth management, zero growth loans, right? Yeah. It's a 10 P. Yeah. Right. So, you know, what do you want? You want the, you know, and they've got a much. Yeah. That's Bank of America's got a way worse CRE book than, you know, there's, if you, if the problem with the regional banks, you got to roll up your sleeves. You got to get into the, into the, the nitty gritty of the loan books and the NIMS. It's not like buying the XLF. Yeah. It's not like buying the the, XLF. I I, I, I won't derail us to a nitty gritty conversation about the regional banks. But the rally also brought in that. Yeah. The Dow hit a new all time high. RSP, if you look so, at- Sorry, let me interrupt. This show brought to you by Bank of America. I forgot to mention to you. <laughs> if not, you look- not, not a fan. Not if, we, if we look a, <laughs> just over there, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we can throw our stones. If you look at like a ratio of, of uh, the S&P equate to the S&P, like it, it ripped higher. The rally's broadening out. Yeah, and I, and I think, look, when, when there's a massive easing, which is what we've had, it's a market-based easing, but a massive easing, it should help those- you know the the water's going back out. Yeah. Right. The people who who got caught are feeling a little bit better now. Right. Yes. They're they're floating a little uh, well, a little bit remember, better these days. Speaking of Bank of America, like one of the big one of the big reasons to be bearish to as recently as two months ago was their mortgage their mortgage book and higher for longer would have not been fun. 
Um, if it's not going to be higher for longer, it makes it a little bit more palatable to be invested in the equity of, of Bank of America. So, and there's a lot of that, I guess, in many other sectors, not just in the banks. Yeah, in one form or another, they're exposed to either Fair. the financing or the bonds themselves. Boy, I hope it doesn't reverse. <laughs> I hope we're not looking at spiking bond yields next week hey, or, or the week after. I want to I want to just skip a few topics and say this 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 bank thing. Bob, you tweeted the great deposit flight risk of 2023 oh. didn't materialize despite high rates. This is a legitimate concern for some people, at least, uh, earlier in the year. Deposits have been pretty stable, up for months now. And before I hear, quote, but large-time deposits are surging, recognize that the $400 billion increase since SVB is just 2% of the deposit base. So Let's what are the this. chart that we're looking at and what did not materialize? Well, this is a, a chart of the deposits. Uh, the The blue one uh, is the small small bank deposits, and the red line is large bank deposits. This is wild. Wait, and why are the large bank deposits falling? Is that is that money markets? Yeah, I mean that's basically people. Oh shit! Moving money. It's cash sorting. Exactly, and and the issue is that the large banks, the big banks, they're still offering you zero. So your motivation to move right is higher. Is is higher actually at the large banks than that's at the small banks. Most people would have said it at least six months ago. It's the opposite. Because they would have said the credit risk existed in the small banks, but the small banks have gotten through, and their NIMS have been hit a little bit. Their net interest margins. Why aren't people leaving regional banks? Why? Because there why? is no. Because there is no risk anymore. Because there's no risk. Right. No, but why? How come money? How come money's coming out of large banks and going to money markets? Because they're paying one basis point of in interest nothing. at the large. And regional large banks, banks are paying more. And regional banks are two things. One, they're paying a bit more on average, right? But you know, like. The NIM of, you know, Comerica is is actually higher than the NIM of Bank of America. So it's not, you know, it's not a radically different story. And the other thing is we sort of talk about the benefit of transaction deposits in, in you know, small and regional banks because most of the banking that's happening there are people who are, you know, doing actual business, right? And if you're running a business, you're not carefully managing exactly how much, you know, money market flow you have. It's not an investment asset. It's a business asset. If you're, you know, I don't know, building houses in Topeka, right? The money comes in, the money comes out. You're not thinking about it. You're not thinking about the credit risk of your bank. And so it's not that surprising right. that the capital's all that, you know, that it's that sticky. One of the things that I'm going to be paying close attention to in 2024 are money market funds. Six trillion dollars now. A lot of that came in over the last couple of years. It was at four and a half before the recent rate <coughs> hike, and now it's at six. It's just an incredible run. Uh, Balchunas had a stat that we mentioned last week, something like, 20 of the top 23 gathering mutual funds were money market. Like, it's just yeah. something crazy. In your opinion, how quickly does the money leave? Because my my hypothesis here is that it it was relatively slow to go in. I think it's going to be relatively slow to come out. Do you disagree with that? Yeah, I think because people think of – people are, are, are often – they're not – they might shift – between one cash-like asset and another cash-like asset. This is not going into the, into the stock market. But the idea that they're going to you – know, that someone's looking at that and then boom, flooding cash into the stock market, it's it's just not how – you know, people think about cash and assets pretty differently. But if the money came out of stocks in the first place, that's different. But it didn't. But it, but it didn't. It, it didn't. It came from checking accounts. Right. It's mostly people who had their, you know, their – Does it go back into checking accounts? Yes. Oh, no. No. It's no. going gonna to stay there. So it'll stay. It'll stay. Uh, so there'll be disappointment, though, when five turns into three by the end of the year, let's say, or 175 base points in Fed funds rate cuts. Let's say 5% money market turns into 3.25. It'll stay. There's going to be some disappointment, but I guess that's not enough disappointment. I mean, I mean here's the question. Call. It's like, 
well, take people your even transactional notice. checking account. Like, yeah. have you carefully figured out how to create, you know, to shift the money into your money market fund and then out? And then how sensitive are you to the rates? And like, this this is this is like a classic behavior. I'm the wrong person to ask. I don't even know where my bank <laughs> right, is. I have but, nothing to do with but, that. But it, but it's it's a classic sort of behavioral finance thing. It's like there's a whole bunch of people running around saying. You know, I'm going to, on my Apple app, shift my deposits or whatever. And, I, like, I think I can get 5% on my Apple app, but then I have to set it up and then link my bank account. People like, don't move money. And I just, you know, like, what a yeah, pain. Yeah, it's, anno- it's annoying. So, right. so <laughs> here's, here's something that I think we could see on a few TikTok accounts next year when the Fed starts to cut. People will be mad because their easy money is gone. When interest, when their high yield savings goes from five down to three and a quarter, oh, the Fed is stealing my income. <laughs> the Fed is That's stealing my so money. So funny. So the Fed is going to be easing. I didn't pe- even think about people that. People will think that the, that the free money is gone. <laughs> what is actually returning? Oh, I can't wait for those takes. <laughs> that's, that's that's coming. The, a kid on TikTok with like four hundred dollars in his account. It's, it's a like, scam. Where the, where the hell is my money? It's a scam. The Fed <laughs> is taking it. Where's my income? Oh my. Where's my side hustle income? Hey, can I ask you about the stupidest piece of research I've ever seen in my life? Uh, you're better off going all in on stocks than bonds, new research finds. That's remarkable. Are they saying stocks produce a higher return than bonds? That, that, that uh, Have you heard that anywhere it took, before? It took 125 pages, actually, uh, is this to, ser- to this, say that. This is serious? Did you read it, Bob? I, 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 I tried to read all of it. <laughs> Who it published was... this research? Hamburger University? <laughs> it, was, what is the... it was brutal. What is the gist of this? That if as if you're a long-term investor, you should buy stocks instead of bonds? Well, is that seriously what they're saying? That's that's what they're saying. But is one more volatile than the other? Uh, uh, that is not <laughs> that is not something that they I would consider. Okay. <laughs> I almost can't. Okay. I did that research too. That's funny. I, mean, we, I reached the same conclusion. Uh, well, the, the biggest yeah. thing that they say is the, the key thing to hold stocks for the long term is that when they go down 60%, yeah, don't panic. Just, just don't do anything. That, oh it's, it's not that complicated, folks. When your stocks are down 60%, everyone Maybe even buy more is another thing that you could do. And it'll be okay. And right. if you're on the verge of retirement, it's going to be okay. You're not Just don't think about the fact that your retirement savings has evaporated. Did you and Ben talk about that? Yeah, it's a joke. What, what was Ben's take? It's just – it's, it's nonsense. It's not even worth discussing. It's just, we, should, we, should, we should put that research out. Uh, can we talk about ETFs? Tell, how's business? Tell us about uh, tell us about unlimited funds. Good, you, good. For the audience that's not familiar, tell us what you tell us what you guys do. Yeah, I mean, we, we've uh, my co-founder Bruce and I have been in the the hedge fund business for a long time, and uh, and when we left, we we thought I bet we could build technology that uh, that can you know look over the shoulder of those managers and try and figure out what they're doing in real time, and then we could you know package that into an ETF, make it available for everyone. That's um, so that's what we've been doing. So the technology, you have ring cameras in every hedge fund's building. That's right. Yeah. What actually, is the technology? I, I, have, a, I have a keypad logger <laughs> you're, on every computer. You're trying to approximate what the return would be for different hedge fund strategies. Exactly. And then give it to people in a way that they're not paying two and twenty. They're right. not locked up. They're not okay. Right. Because we're using technology. You know, we can what's charge the, a lot. What's less. the easiest hedge fund strategy to replicate? Not not easy in the sense that you're guaranteed to make money. I don't I don't want you to answer it that way. Easy in the sense that. Hey, it turns out this wasn't that hard of a strategy to reverse engineer. Equity long short. Okay, why? I mean, the reality is if you're trading equities, there's there's a a thousand stock pickers out there who will tell you all the nuances of this stock versus that stock. There's there's only so much, only so many types of risk you take. You take countries, 
geography, your, your geographies, factors, size. sectors, yeah, size. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like 20 things and you can boil okay. it down that way. It's pretty straightforward and you can, you know, put together something that basically does what they're doing at an, at, you know, at an index level. But so you can put together something that does what they're doing on the whole. At but, the index level, yeah. Right, because then within that category, I don't know how many hedge funds there are doing equity long short, a 1,000? Yeah, 1,000. Okay. So 50 in any given year are really good at it. Yep. I'm and, making that up, but like a, approximately. Yeah. So you can't replicate that. You can replicate what the strategy at an index level is returning and how it's behaving. That's right. That's okay. right. But the thing the thing to keep in mind is that there's no manager outperformance persistence in hedge funds. Well, we know that, but that's not, it's not popular. People don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear that. But you, <laughs> you can't engineer Uh-oh. Lone Pine and give people, here, now you own a Lone Pine but, clone. But, but, but why, you know, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's well, bad. Well, I agree. Right? Right. And if – and if there's no outperformance persistence, then what you want is – that means you can't pick, right? Yes. Which, well, there's no benefit in picking. Because there's no benefit in Prospectively. picking. Prospectively. No prospective benefit in picking. And so you'd much rather get the benefit of diversification right. in the views than you know trying to pick. Well, if you're a big family office, you probably allocate to seven or eight different hedge funds anyway. So you're not you're not picking one in that case. Yeah, yeah. You well, might I mean, be concentrating. I, I, the reason why we started this actually, I, I worked with Future Fund for Australia for a while, which is a big client of Bridgewater's. That's uh, publicly known. Um, and what they do in their hedge fund portfolio is they invest in dozens of different funds. So they're getting the category returns and anyway. They're get, essentially getting the category returns. But the thing that they do that's so neat is they go to each one of those funds and they say, "Hey, I got billions of dollars." Like, forget this two and 20 stuff. Like, we're bringing the fees way down. So what do they do? They basically build their own low-cost, diversified index fund. By virtue of their – they use their size to their advantage. That's exactly right. So why not make it liquid? So So why not make it liquid? Corey Hofstein tweeted, any hedge fund beta that can be turned into an ETF will be turned into an ETF. At which point, institutions have to ask, why am I paying hedge fund fees for this? Why do I want something that's less liquid? I'm betting this trend accelerates. I was about to ask you. Well, to, then what do you talk about at parties? Well, yeah, true. I was about to your ask, venture investments. I was, uh, I was about to ask you, who wants hedge fund beta? Because is hedge fund beta something that is actually a good thing? What? But I guess you're saying, but a lot of these people are already getting the beta because they're diversified across all the 10 funds anyway, why not cut the cost by 80%? Exactly, exactly. And beta, I think, is quite not quite right. Like alpha, like hedge funds are, generate alpha, right? Returns before the fees. But is hedge fund beta al- actually alpha? Yeah, I, I call it diversified alpha, right? That's what's happening, right? Is index, you know, it's it's just a diversified set of alpha strategies, all sorts of different kinds, all sorts of different managers. Ways, ways what's, of the, what's the hardest hedge fund strategy to replicate? Probably uh, the global macro folks. They're, okay, why? Well, because because they're they're typically a they little. They tweet a lot. What's that? They I tweet. <laughs> no, because there's a lot of guessing with hedge fund. There's, there's a lot That's of different the category th- of hedge fund manager that is most prone to tweet, right? Uh, uh, global macro. Global guys? macro. I, I don't. I mean, I guess you know, as oh. a global macro guy, okay. uh, why is who's it, prone to tweet? Why is it so hard? Um, why is Bob feels so, seen. <laughs> why is it so hard to replicate that particular type of investing? Well, there's a lot of different assets, right? Because, okay. you know, a, a big global macro fund might invest in 70 different assets, right? And so it's just a more complicated set of portfolio is, than you'd see in an equity long short fund, which may the look universe like – The universe is bigger. Right. The universe is about four or five times when, bigger. When I said guessing, I, what I really meant was – obviously, I was joking. But I feel like global macro is more um, 
there's a lot more art than science, not to say there aren't rules-based strategies, but there's so many inputs. How much of that is quantitative that then you have the qualitative filter where the manager will, you know, digest all the data and then say, okay, here's my interpretation of the data. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot, I think there there's naturally, you know, a range of different managers, but, you know, qualitative understanding is certainly a big part of what's going on with a lot of macro managers. Now, what we're trying to do is infer their positions rather than their decision-making roles, which should- How do you do that? Which allows us to to pick up, you know, if they're they're using discretionary views. We, we look at the returns. Take You look at the returns at any point in time, and then you know what they trade. You look at the returns. And I'm sure you guys look at this. Like, whenever you see a manager, you're like, well, that guy got 5% this month, and stocks did this, and this sector did this. And you sort of say with your gut, like, oh, I think they're probably underweight tech, which, you know, is basically all equity long short managers this year. And so all we're doing is we're just doing that process just in a more computationally rigorous way to back out what they're doing. And, and there's some the reasons why uh, you know, like as you get to a diversified index, the noise goes down relative to essentially the the, the signal, <laughs> right? right? That in terms of the exposures and and you know you can you can get better understanding by looking at sort of the path of returns. Okay. Because you know these managers they shift their positions, but it's not instantaneous. So you know the portfolios that that generated the returns last month or three months ago are related to the portfolios that they hold today. So there's no more index funds coming to market. It's enough already, right? We, we don't need any more. We get it. Balchun has tweeted the percentage of new ETF launches that are actively managed has reached a record, yeah. 80%, which is wild. Active, 80% of the launches of ETFs were active ETFs? He yeah. said, and he also said- active, I'm not surprised by that. No, are you? active are you? ETFs are also taking a quarter of the flows. I guess, are, are factors considered active? I, I guess probably for this, yeah. for this, probably. Yeah, they are- there but are. fine. But my point is, it's enough. We we don't need any more index funds. We have a million. We got all the pieces. That's we, the beautiful yeah. thing, right? The pieces are now free. Uh, I wouldn't want to be the guy who's creating a business around selling the pieces, right? Because yeah, no. <laughs> because that's a terrible business. No, right? it's literally commodities. that's a business that's going to fall to zero essentially. Right. Your IP is worth nothing. It's just whose index you can license and what's the lowest. And, and, amount and even these pay. factors, right? These factors are basically free at mm. this point or so close to free yes. um, that it's not worth it. And so the question is, I, I think a lot of active managers are looking at the ETF wrapper and they're saying, you know, with the 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 regulatory changes in 2021, giving a lot more flexibility to be able to run long, short, et cetera. It's actually a pretty good wrapper to run a product. Yeah, they're getting, they're getting a, a permission to not reveal their holdings right away. They're getting like – they're getting like a lot of reasons to, if not build a new one, at least replicate an existing fund in in this wrapper. That's and right, that, and that directionally probably continues. I think so. And and I mean the the thing that that often probably doesn't get talked about is operationally with all these white label providers, it's actually operationally pretty efficient to run an ETF. So whereas, yeah. you know, if you go to a big LP fund like. 50, 70% of the people are like people who are no, n doing nothing related to running the money. Yeah. Right? So you could have, you know, you could be paying 100 basis points of your fund structure for people who are back office and operations. You launch an ETF, use one of these white label platforms, you can do that for 15 basis points. So this is the, uh, so the last bastion of the mutual fund is retirement. And they just haven't perfected fractional ETF purchasing in 401ks 
and getting everyone in that ecosystem comfortable with the mechanics of that. 100% it's going to happen. I can't believe it's taken this long. When that does happen and a very mainstream 401k provider just says, okay, this is now part of the mainstream platform. ETF 401k is how we're doing it going forward. That's going to be a dominoes falling moment, I think. I think it's going to be tough for a lot of those uh, those businesses that are running the 401ks because they're charging. Yeah, they're charging a lot of money for a lot of shit that fees. nobody needs them to do anymore. Huge that's, well, that's what's held it up. That's what's entrenching the mutual fund structure. I was looking at Targetate funds. And if you take Vanguard out, the AUM-weighted Targetate fund cost is like 40 basis points, 50 basis points. Way too high. Yeah. Are you kidding me? In this day and age, way too high. That's that. I mean, way too high. That's just theft. Yeah. Right for a product that is it's it's an index product. Yeah, and essentially the robos are unbundled versions of a life cycle right. fund. Right. right, that's exactly right. You're putting in the date that you expect to retire, and they're saying here's the they're mix, giving and you they're the ETF it. components of what those life cycle funds are buying. So I think I, I, there was a stat about mutual fund outflows from the Morningstar report recently. I think it was 64 straight months or something. So it's a melting ice cube. If that ever happens, it will be a flame, a torch to the ice cube. Yeah, we just don't know when if if it's gonna. I think it's a. I think it's a when. I don't think it's an if. We got a lot. I don't know A when. lot of entrenched interest. I mean, you yeah. think, yeah. like, take it from the you know the the David in the ETF and the Active Forty Act product world. Like, the Goliaths are out there. They're big and they're angry right, about this, and they are. They will do whatever it takes. Well, one thing is though that they are increasingly willing now to dip uh to dip a toe in both, and. Like we saw Dimensional was one of the last holdouts mm -hmm. to do ETFs. Now it's their hottest business. They're going to keep going. So at a certain point, there won't be any incumbents left who haven't embraced this for at least their top managers. So like like every mutual fund company has its quote-unquote flagship right. or it's like best managers. At some point, the manager is going to say to them, dude, I'm crushing it. Why am I, why am, why am I in outflow? Why am I in redemption? Like give me a better structure – all I want to do is manage money. I don't want to watch money leave. Like, they're going to have to. It just, it, it takes so long, like a lot of other things. Yeah, it takes so long. But, I mean, it is true that what huge market size is this? $10 trillion in actively managed mutual funds, right? Right. And in actively managed ETFs, it's like $500 billion. And, you know, and that includes stuff that I would say is index adjacent. Right. So Mutual but, funds are but, index but adjacent, But so you're too. part of this new wave of ETFs. Like, you came along in the last couple of years. And like investors, advisors, everybody is interested in actively managed ETFs. It took 25 years. Yeah. Right? For <laughs> <It> the, <did. laughs> like, honestly, I think, I mean, say what you want. Kathy Wood kicked the door down. You might not like her investing strategy. You might not love her marketing, but she is the reason that active ETFs have exploded in popularity in the post-pandemic period. And yeah, it's I mean, staying she's, that way. She's been a absolutely a, a torchbearer for the active yeah. ETF community. I also think from a, a, a product creator standpoint, the regulatory changes created a lot more flexibility to yes. do a lot more interesting stuff right. without having to get approval from the SEC and stuff like that. And, you know, you basically brought down you – know, I talked to people who started, you know, startup ETF businesses 10 years ago and it was, you know, millions of dollars to so start. So hard. Right, yeah. and get the exemption and the legal papers and setting up the trusts and all that stuff. And now today, if you have an idea, I mean, you could literally in like, you know, 
75 days. I think what's new is done for a few hundred thousand bucks. I was going to say there are platform providers who have figured out it's a pretty good business to help somebody that has a great idea get their product trading. Like uh, Alpha uh, Architect. Alpha Architect, Wes Gray. Like those guys helped a few friends of ours. Yep. And they realized, hey, this is we have a, a lot of know-how here. We can help these people that have great ideas. It's actually a good business. So yeah, that's and that's and those, what's new. And those guys are are I mean they're they're great businesses and yeah. they're helping a lot of a, a lot of folks. To- totally great. Uh, can I play one more thing for everybody? Is it going to be as boring as that Fed thing? No, <laughs> I have much more discerning taste. Can we, than can we listen to it on two X speed? You by the way, you have tenured professors. Well, let me let me say something. There are about, I guess, 20 million Jews in the world. Think of all the accomplishments of the Jews in science, mm-hmm. in the arts. Go right down the list. It's incredible when you think of only 20 million and all they've done and all they've the, the truly gifted people. Thank you. And that may sound like I'm biased, but I am biased because, thank God, most of my doctors are Jewish, and I can tell you right now, they take care of me like a baby, and I'm 88, and I'm still going, so at least as a, but the point I'm making is they've done so much for civilization. That should be the best yeah, he reason doesn't even know what he's th- He doesn't even know the point he's making. I think he wanted to shout out his Jew doctors. Was that Joe Biden? That's Ken Langone. That's my guy right now. I was feeling that. He was on Squawk. Uh, I guess he probably does it like twice a year or something. He had some stuff to say, but... Uh, Ken Langone, big fan, big fan of the fan Jews. Of the Jews. Speaking of the speaking of the Jews, uh, February fourth. Don't speak of the Jews. February fourth. New curb your enthusiasm. Is it? New, All right. Allegedly the last wow. one, but I'll believe that when I see it. I All can't right. wait. Very cool. Uh, I wanted to just uh, throw this out about Netflix for the first time ever revealed what people are actually watching. Did you listen to Sarandos? He was on the town. Not yet, but this is a. There is a lot of information in here. It's meaty. What was what were the biggest takeaways? We like we've never seen data from Netflix like this. Not like this. What 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 were your big biggest takeaways? Uh, so Ben Thompson wrote about this, and this is this is not at all surprising. But the power law that it, structure that exists in Netflix that exists everywhere else in the world. If you just plot this out, hours viewed, it is it yes. looks <laughs> there's there's nothing, and then there's everything at the top. Uh, that so that was that was takeaway number one. Uh, this but just, how did the night agent get th- to uh, be well? The there's top? A, there's a lot it, of garbage. It was like, just okay. It was it was. It was like something that you have on in the background Can when I you're give answering you my a few emails. But that's what it is. Give you my that's theory, what it is. Nobody right? watches it. It's in the background. Certain right? things come along at a time where they're not competing with a lot of other things, and it ha- and it benefits them. But I also think Netflix has the power to make something a top ten hit. Yeah, at well, least that was for the my, first. That week. was my guess. Is it, my guess is it just you know just came on. Well, if know? they spend <laughs> en- if, if they spend enough money on something where they decide we're going to get behind, it, right. I watched them do this right. with like they decided. That one week bird box was going to be the thing. And they manifested that by virtue of where they placed it on everyone's screen. It's objectively terrible. It's it's Sandra Bullock with with a, a scarf around her eyes. And it was eyes. a cultural phenomenon. And it was awful. It was awful. It was but, awful. They, but they have that power, maybe not forever, but right now, that's different. There's no cable system that has ever been able to do that for programming. That's right. That's so right. that that's what was really fascinating to me. I don't know. Anything else on 30, this? I think 30% of the list was outside of, uh, was non-English. It's just a lot of garbage. I mean, I'm a happy Netflix shareholder, but there was just a lot of junk on this list. I can't believe twice as many people watching Emily in Paris as Squid Games. 
You're surprised. I'm not. My wife just I watched. Mean, you've got it's to more, be kidding. It's me. more accessible though for most you've people. You've got to be kidding. My me. wife just watched Squid Game. The it looks like the challenge. The like, challenge. Yeah, that's what oh, it looks it's like. Great. I don't watch the challenge, but what, what is it? It's like a reality show. Yeah, it's a I mean, game, it's like game a show. You no, know, it's it's take the Squid Games. You know, they don't murder the people, but oh, they. So then that's a. It's that's a little. A it's a little lower stakes, but you know, you get a, you get eighty percent of the fun. My favorite recurring show on Netflix. My wife watches it mostly, but I I pop in. Love is blind. Great. It's great. great what is TV. that about? Love is blind. It's a great, it's a great premise. You have it's basically blind dating. It's oh, it's two, a, oh, it's a game it's show. It's two people. It's two people who are in a room together and they're separated by a wall, so they can't see each other. And they date and they propose to each other in like all in like a week period. It's a it's a reminiscent of uh, uh, dating in the dark, which I'm sure it's, you saw back in the day. That's my people before my time, but it's a wonderful train wreck. I love it. I love it. <laughs> all right. Did you have fun on the show today? It was awesome. Did we make all of your all of your podcasting dreams come true for Christmas? Of course. Are you doing a lot of you doing a lot of podcasts these days? Yeah. Are you out, you're out and about right out now. Out and about, you know. I love seeing everywhere I'm, I see you. I turn the volume up. I always learn from nice. you. Uh, what's your favorite podcast in the, in uh, finance right now? Uh, Compound and Friends. Look how smart this guy is. So quick too. All right, uh, we're gonna do favorites, and then we're gonna let everybody get out of here. Um, you've been on the show before. I see you brought us something. What's your favorite of uh, of the week? What should people know about? Oh, Hidden Forces. Okay. Which is not I know this a finance dude. podcast. Dimitri uh, Dimitri Kofinas. Yeah, I know. Very interesting. I, I listen to, you know, I do enough of this on yeah. my day-to-day. I like sort of, uh, you know, podcasts that explore a lot of different stuff. This one was about UFOs. Mm. I, you know, I'm, I'm like a, a, a space, I'm space interested. You're curious. I'm space curious. You Are you UFO and, curious or just I, space I, Yeah, curious. space and UFO curious. And this was like, this was like a smart, thoughtful person basically asking, you know, the questions that would come to your mind to someone who spent a long time, uh, actually uh, an academic who came out of religious studies Mm. and actually came to it based upon seeing similar uh, recounting of experiences, let's say, in the religious history, you know, in religious documents back thousands of years. Duncan was once abducted by aliens. And then (laughs) – and then, you know, now is studying it today. It was did very ever, interesting. Did you ever read uh, Where Is Everyone? No. You would like this book. Uh, you know, you're familiar with Faramir's Paradox? Yeah. Okay. So the book gives maybe 24 different chapters, 24 different answers to Faramir's Paradox, which hmm. is, I guess, what's the easiest way to frame it? If the universe is this big, like, where is everyone? Why haven't we – and these theories range from, oh, they're here. We just don't know. Right. To actually we're an intergalactic zoo. And we're being studied and or petted, uh, you know, and and uh, I thought it was a really interesting way to answer that question with like 20 different answers of like what That's could cool. be plausible answers. Have you guys, be into that book. have you guys seen A Fire in the Sky movie the from like movie? the 90s? Yeah. That scared the shit out of me as a child. Uh, why? Because this guy got abducted and it was probing. like real. It was real. Not a, not the probing. probing. There was probing. There was probing. Uh, did you read the Jamie Dimon article at New York Magazine? I did. You you read it? The whole Do you know thing. what we're referring to? No. Okay. There's a guy. His name is Gary Cernovitz, and he's he not a hedge ri- fund. What does he work? He's not a writer. He's like a hedge fund guy. Yeah. But he wrote this, and he's a client of J.P. Morgan's. So, like, with a little trepidation, he's like, you know, should I even be writing this? You know, like I do business with them, but it's not mean spirited at all. What he? It's Lime Rock Partners is the name of his. Uh, firm. And I was chatting, I was, I was chatting, not to brag, I was chatting with him a little bit on LinkedIn. Um, but the gist of the article is this is now a $4 trillion bank. It is pulled away 
from Bank of America and anyone else that was considered its peer. It's like a one of a kind operation at this point. What makes it tick? Like, what is what is Jamie Dimon really doing? Fraud. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I thought it was a really well done article and it, and it was published in an interesting place, New York Magazine. You wouldn't expect to read such a deep dive. It's like thousands of now. words. You you would you would appreciate this as well. So the article is called Jamie Dimon's Four Trillion Dollar Machine by Gary Cernovitz. And that's at uh, New York Mag. Michael, you got something for us? Last night I was watching Headliners Probed. O- <laughs> Stop it. Headliners only. Uh, Kevin Hart and Chris Rock go on tour. And it's the history of their friendship and coming up through the ranks. And it's if you're a fan of comedy. I don't even know that existed. Gotta watch. I think it where, just came out. Where is it? Where do you think? Netflix? Netflix. They're the best. Yeah. All right. Right we'll, under the night agent. There we, we'll there check we that go. out. All right. Hey, everybody. If you enjoyed- hey, Hey, everybody, if you enjoyed learning uh, Dunk, from wait, Dunk Bob. Has, Duncan's got something. Oh, you have some for us? Yeah, yeah. With, I was uh, about to wrap up. Go Spotify ahead. wrapped. I just wanted to share a couple of things. So we've uh, we've had people sharing that we're in their top podcast. So please keep doing that. If you're listening on Spotify, share that with us. We love seeing it. Trying to find the person who's listened the most. So if you think you might be that person, share that. Um, we got David Walsh with us in number one spot. We've got uh, Bernard with us in uh, their top spot. We've got Adam in our in the top spot. There we go, Bernard. And we've we got, love you guys. interestingly, you. Powell from Poland. I can't read it, but it says 4,921 minutes of listening. They're in the top 2%. Thank you. Pretty cool. Very Thank you. Cool. That's awesome. Love that. Thank you guys for listening to us on Spotify. We appreciate it. Hey, everybody. If you enjoyed learning from Bob as we did, here's how you can follow him. Your Twitter account is at Bob E. Unlimited. The E for Elliot. Okay. Uh, at Bob E Unlimited. And you're pretty active. You put out charts and stuff. On, okay. Two and, times a day. All right. And on LinkedIn, uh, what are you doing on LinkedIn? Say, like roughly the same, same thing. More I find myself commentary. like doing almost the same thing I used to do on Twitter on LinkedIn. Because uh, Twitter's more macro stuff. Okay. LinkedIn's more industry commentary. Oh, that's interesting that you break like that. it up that way. Yeah, I break it up that way. Get get people are more interested when they go to LinkedIn about the industry and well because they're there as a, their professional pro- self, exactly. not as like a trader per se. That's right. That's right. So I got to you, know, you keep keep people interested. And in I also have a YouTube. Well, tell us about the YouTube but, channel. I mean, I, I don't. I, you guys are masters of this stuff. I, 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 eh. We just tried to throw some videos up, see whether it's uh, what's your, what's the how do, how do people find the YouTube Bob, channel? Bobby, Unlim- I don't know, Bob. Elliot, I don't YouTube. know, maybe. <laughs> All right. There's some SEO on it that uh, I haven't figured out. I'll get right. some tips from you. Guys. We'll uh, we'll find it. We'll link to it. We'll excerpt it. We'll play audio from it. We'll do all the things. All right. Uh, Bob Elliott, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for coming. Really appreciate it. We had, we had thank you. a great this time talking great. to you. Awesome, man. Uh, so this is the intermission. We're going to have you stick around. We're going to do another hour when we get back. Awesome. Sounds good? Keep doing it. All right. Compound and Friends the other is indicators. out. <laughs> uh, ratings, reviews, do the things. We'll see you next week.